0: It's a Saturday evening, it's the 27th of January, 2024, and we're a little over three weeks into the winter retreat period, so very much feeling that uh, time is passing and we're very much in the middle of the winter retreat, and so far I feel very good about it, it's always interesting going into the winter retreat and there's that sense of setting sail and now now perhaps there is that sense that we're very much in the middle of the journey sailing across the mahasamut the great ocean the ocean of suffering trying to cross the ocean of suffering and uh, when we practice and when we practice a lot we practice a lot of sitting and walking meditation and we listen to teachings and contemplate a lot then it can happen that the mind can start start to be very courageous and feel like things are going well feel like the mind can actually start courageously letting go of things things that have hindered and obstructed us in the past we can start letting go of those things that are the causes of suffering things that perhaps we couldn't let go of before However, that being said, when we start to call into question our desires, cravings, unwholesome cravings that hinder us and cause us suffering, dukkha, then uh, things start to get interesting because we may have been inspired to come to the practice at first that, oh yeah, this is, that makes perfect sense. Give up craving and suffering. And but then when we actually practice following that inspiration, it's not so easy. It's we might be very inspired, and we might even logically, rationally think, "Yeah, I can do this. I'll just put forth the effort, and I'll just do it." And then the karmic baggage comes up. We have everybody has to deal with their karmic baggage and then it's a it ends up being this long road to the end of suffering it's not something that can just be quickly done or letting go developing wisdom can't be done by an act of will it's through the practice and the development of patience and generosity and and meditation all of these things and it's a long journey it's a long road but to not become disheartened. If we are able to start going against and actually letting go of some of our desires, that the paradox is that, well, then, then things are actually easier. It's uh, like Longpo Cha, one of his teachings saying that practice is really difficult. Why is it difficult? It's because of craving. Once we don't have craving, then it's not difficult. So, we suffer, we suffer because of craving. Kama tanha, bhava tanha, vibhava tanha, these three types of craving that's in the very basic formulation of the Four Noble Truths, the samudaya, the cause of suffering. And nobody wants to suffer. Suffering by its nature is something we don't want. It's something unpleasant. It's something we don't want to have. And suffering comes about, according to the formulation of the Four Noble Truths, through craving. It comes about through craving. So we, we don't want suffering. Nobody wants suffering. And the Buddha comes along and says, suffering is caused by these three types of craving. And nobody wants to let go of craving. So nobody wants to suffer but also nobody wants to stop suffering or very few people want to stop suffering through letting go of craving. So craving by its very nature doesn't want to be let go of. It's been the, you could say it's been the king of our hearts since time immemorial. And it doesn't want to get off of its throne. So, uh, Therein lies, I don't know, how does that saying go? Therein lies the tail. There, <laughs> therein, therein, there you have it. So what do we do? But uh, the as it says one of the wonderful and marvelous things about the Dhamma is that the Buddha teaches the Dhamma about giving up craving. And some people actually do want to do it and are willing to put forth the effort so that's what we're trying to do is there's going to be difficulty there's going to be unpleasantness we can ask ourselves so with the practice we have to become very very flexible the mind has to become very malleable and very bright very malleable uh, very able to flow into different situations very very patient we have to cultivate very deep patience patience vast like the sea and have a long enduring mind and do what is difficult to do it's difficult to give up craving to be able to let go and we at least have to call these things into question and also things like our views and our opinions our perceptions all of this needs to be called into question is that really the case is it really so all of our cravings and attachments we have to be able to ask is that so? is that really going to make me happy? and even if it does make me happy or is gratifying temporarily is that happiness going to last? so when desire comes along and says this is going to be good for sure then you can say is that so? and the the desires are very compelling so when we start to go against desire there's some desires it's not a big problem we can go against them but then there's the really deep karmic desires and longings and cravings and these uh, life affirming and uh, you could say maybe very very strong very deeply rooted desires and cravings those things calling those into question going against those things, that's going to take Barami, that's going to take a great cultivation of the path, and those are the very things which are going to pull us away from the path. So that's where it gets interesting, where the things that are very convincing come up, where we might think, oh, I intuitively feel this is the way I'm supposed to go. And yet, if we look at the teachings, it might be antithetical to the path, but we might feel I'm, very, I, I'm a very intuitive person. I intuitively feel that this is the way I'm supposed to go, not the way of letting go of craving. So we have to be careful at that point. Mara is very intuitive. Mara knows what we're thinking. So, so we have to be very careful to... Uh, learn how to align our practice dhamma new nu, dhamma, nu dhamma patipada practicing dhamma in accordance with dhamma or meaning practicing dhamma in accordance with the path as it's laid out by the lord buddha this is very important i intuitively feel this is right for me so that's the hardest type of mind state to teach how can you argue with that well it's the intuition it must be right but it's not. It's because it's following craving. It's not right, according to Dhamma. Or you could say maybe it's true, but it's not right. Or it's right, but it's not true. Whereas the Dhamma is both right and true. So during the winter retreat, though, when we meditate more, we can develop this very courageous mindset where we OK, well, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll try to go against craving. When these things come up in the mind, I'll we'll question it, see if I can let it go. But it is actually almost counterintuitive when we really, uh, when we really try to cultivate that Dhamma, new Dhamma, Patipada, practicing Dhamma in accordance with Dhamma. Uh, the Buddha said this is one of the factors of stream entry, is to practice Dhamma in accordance with Dhamma, practice Dhamma in line with Dhamma. So what does that mean? How do we do that? Uh, this is where we get to more of the deeper, more profound aspect of what is Dhamma. Uh, there's a story which uh, Longpa Pasano used to tell fairly often, and I like to repeat it sometimes of a, a vignette of a uh, an old Tibetan monk, a Rinpoche, and his student, his the student is very, very sincere. And uh, so the student is like, OK, I'm going to do some meditation retreat. I'm going to do some special practices. I'm going to get to the Dhamma. I'm going to get to some of these attainments that they talk about. So he goes to his teacher, and he's like, OK, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a lot of sitting meditation. Just going to devote myself to sitting meditation. And the teacher says, "Sitting meditation is good, but Dhamma practice is better." And the student, "Huh, what does he mean by that?" So he goes and does a lot of sitting meditation. And uh, after a period of time, a number of weeks, he decides, "Hmm, this this uh, sitting this sitting meditation, you know, it's uh, it doesn't seem to be." really leading anywhere. Maybe my mind is getting concentrated. Maybe things are going kind of okay, but I don't seem to be making any breakthroughs in my practice. Maybe I should be practicing walking meditation. So he goes to his teacher and says, I think, you know, I think what I need to do is a lot of walking meditation. And his teacher says, walking meditation is good, but Dhamma practice is better so what does he mean by that? He goes and devotes himself to walking meditation. Same thing happens and uh, goes back to his teacher after a period of, a long period of time of doing walking meditation. Yeah, I'm not, uh, not sure if this is working. I'm gonna devote myself to bowing. So I'm gonna do this, what they call a ngondro in the Tibetan, 100,000 or more bows. I'm gonna devote myself to bowing, purify my obscurations. Bowing is good, but Dhamma practice is better. So what does he mean by that? He's bowing, bowing, same thing happens. He's he's getting into it, but it's really, you know, it's really kind of, uh, there doesn't seem to be any major enlightenment experiences or breakthroughs. Okay, maybe I'll devote myself to chanting so same thing happens chanting is good dhamma practice is better so uh he goes and does his chanting sure enough same thing happens it's there's no big major breakthroughs in his practice goes back and says, well uh i tried sitting i tried walking i tried bowing chanting you keep saying dhamma practice is better aren't all these things dhamma practice He's like, well, all those things are good, but they're not in and of themselves, they're not Dhamma practice. And uh, he's like, well, what is Dhamma practice? And he says something like, uh, Dhamma practice is when you renounce this life. Renounce this life, O oh monk. So that's a Dhamma, new Dhamma, patibada. It doesn't mean take your life it doesn't mean kill yourself we don't want to misunderstand it in that way renounce this life give up this life give up attachment to this life just take it as a day and a night that's what uh, Longport Cha came to is that he came to a point where he was just going to practice as if his life was just this day and this night and completely focus on the practice the question has come up a few times, what is mindfulness? Can we explain a little bit more about mindfulness as we go about our day? And this is really in line with that sense of Dhamma, dhamma patibada as well, is that when we just put our heart into every activity and we just really do our best with every activity, it's so much more fulfilling, so much more joyful, so much more fruitful when we put our heart into it when we're not hoping for some sort of result, but we're just doing it because it needs to be done. The Samana is the one who does what needs to be done. It's like that Tibetan monk in the story. He's trying to get something from his practice, from his sitting practice, walking practice, bowing practice, chanting practice. And yet, can we practice just for the sake of practice, Dhamma, dhamma Patipada. There's a story of Long Paul Liam also coming to this conclusion thinking, you know, he's been practicing, 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 and having the thought during his sitting meditation, why do we actually practice? What am I doing? And then the answer coming right away, and this, this happened for Long Por Cha too, and I think it's in uh, later in that book in uh, Still Forest Pool. We practice just for the sake of the practice. We practice to practice. And I really do think that's that description, a very accurate description of Dhamma, Nu Dhamma, Patibada, Because that's when the path becomes very focused on a single point. That's what it's about. It's practicing just for the sake of the practice. So when we say something like renounce this life, it might sound a bit bleak, uh, grim. Of course, that's not how we want to be relating to the practice—it's a very, a very pure, a very pure, joyful thing. This dhamma nu dhamma patipada, and really, we gain so much. We gain so much by coming into the present, by putting our heart into every activity, by cultivating mindfulness as much as possible with whatever we're doing. We gain everything by doing that. We don't lose out. You know, there's only gain, there's not loss in doing that. Or you could say that the one who is mindful, the one who puts their heart into every activity, each day is better. Or you could say it's like the quote from Lumpur Shah, they've got this up at Wapananachat, this, uh, this quote that uh, you don't have to go looking for the Noble Eightfold Path when your heart is ready the Noble full path will come looking for you. You don't have to go looking for peace. When the heart is ready, peace will come looking for you. So that sense of just ripening the heart, it can't happen just through our forcing it to happen, through an act of will. It'd be like taking a, a fruit. It'd be like taking a mango and hoping that it's ripe quickly so we can eat it. But if we just try to eat a green mango, it's just going to be inedible, sour. It's just going to ripen at its own time or like growing a, like planting a tree and watching it grow. Our job is just to water it and tend to it, make sure that insects don't eat it and it's going to grow at its own pace. And eventually after a long period of time, depending on the type of tree, it's going to bear fruit and that fruit will become ripe and we can eat that fruit. But that tree, we can't we can't rush that growth. So it's very much like the ripening of the mind, the building of Parami and the path of practice. You know, it's not just gonna come through getting the right choice, getting the right answer on the multiple choice exam. It's not gonna come through just really just figuring it out mentally it's much more profound than that if if liberation from samsara could come about through just figuring it out mentally i think so many people would have would be totally freed from suffering by now but it uh, comes about through that ripening of the mind and uh, ripening of the practice ripening of these wholesome qualities so this winter retreat period we can really be focusing on the cultivation of parami and we're doing this as a community and cultivating the schedule cultivating those sitting and walking meditation the patient endurance or whatever studies we might be involved in whatever activities we might be involved in in the monastery and then the winter retreat crew also serving the sangha uh, which is a Also another completely valid way of cultivating parami, helping ripen those wholesome qualities. And uh, it's kind of a genius way the Buddha set things up with the alms mendicants, the ordained sangha, receiving food, unsolicited food offerings. But then also for the lay community who serves the sangha, that's actually also the path. It's also, the path, so everybody's on the path. we're all in this together. It's just different parts of the path being cultivated. And the monks need to be generous too. Without that cultivation of service, that cultivation of generosity. we're not going to make it very far on the path as well. Anyone who's practiced for a long time can testify to that. I remember spinning my third Vasa, Wapananachat having that opportunity to be in Thailand for the first time, and just feeling so good in Thailand. And uh, I had come from a Obayagiri and just had spent the last year or so working very, very hard at a Obayagiri. And I was always, ever since coming here, I, I had some skills with being able to help out with construction work, and and also was willing to learn how to be the water monk. And so, had helped out quite a bit with expanding the size of the water system here and undertook this massive project. I had asked permission from Ajahn Pasano, Ajahn Amaro to undertake this massive project during my second vasa. It was uh, tapping into the well at the ridge and then uh, looking after crews of workers to bring the water lines down and and expand, uh, upgrade our water system. And it was this huge undertaking, and I was just uh, really uh exhausted, fed up by the end of the project. Or well, at least even halfway through the project, I was exhausted and fed up. And uh I remember uh Lung Pa Liam visiting at that time. This is the first time I got to meet Long Pa Liam. I'd still never been to Thailand, but he visited here and uh, I remember uh asking him, and this monk, Ajambarteep, was living here at the time, and translated for me. And uh, Lompoliam was staying in the duplex, which was the nicest kuti in the monastery at the time. And uh, we went to go see him, offer a massage, foot massage in the evening, and told him about this project, and just said, actually this is backing up to before entering vasa so it was really when i was just starting out with this project and then it got completed during the vasa so i was still one vasa i hadn't entered my second vasa yet and uh i said you know i'm doing this project and it's a big project and i'm just feel fed up and i'm you know i feel like doing this work my mind gets upset and angry and frustrated isn't it better to not do that kind of work and thus not experience that kind of upset frustration and anger. And Paliam said, no, without a doubt, it's better to do it. It's better to do it and then learn how to come to terms with those things. He said, this is something like a water system. This is Mahadana. This is something that will be a foundation for your practice. And uh, so then... uh, I always, that always stuck with me, that short teaching that uh, he said, without a doubt, keep going, keep doing it, keep doing that project, and uh, then I remember going to Thailand, just feeling so at home in Thailand, actually arriving in Thailand, feeling like I'd come home, and uh, just getting to spin the Vasa at Wapananachat, and uh, there was a Five monks who had ordained. I was at their ordination ceremonies right after I arrived in Thailand. And I remember uh, Ajanyana Damo was the abbot of Wat at the time. And he had a very close relationship with Longpur Plian, who would then visit often and give encouragement to the community and uh, giving, you know, giving encouragement to these new newly ordained monks. It was uh, a group of five now. Uh, It was uh, Analio, Tanio, Conchino, who were the others, a couple others, Kumaro, one other. But uh, at that time, I remember Ajinyanadamo actually giving a talk. It was around that same theme that uh, the advice Liam had given me. He said, all of you guys want to, all of you people here in the monastery want to you know, you're intent on getting samadhi, you're wondering, some of you might be wondering, well, even though I meditate a lot, I'm not sort of, quote, getting samadhi. He said, if your, if your mind isn't getting very peaceful, give more, give more, yeah. practice dana. That also stuck with me. I could really see the truth of that. It's so true. We might think that engaging in activity or work in the monastery is an obstruction to our practice, but it's actually the opposite. Is true. You can see from the long-term effects of dana. Then I remember that, that year actually getting to uh, spend time at Pujam and Daudam. And then my last month in Thailand was at Wat Bapong. I got to spend a month at Wat Bapong and and got to be around Long Pa Liem again. And I was uh, very grateful to Ajahn Kaveli at that time, who was eight Vasas, and he was living at Wapapong. And uh, he did a lot of translating for me, so it really enriched my experience there. I couldn't yet have very much comprehension of the Thai language at that time. And uh, I remember after that month taking leave of Long Liam, getting some advice about practice, and uh, Ajahn Kaveli translating for me. And then uh, Ajahn, and then uh, Longpoliam said, "Oh, and Anumodina." Later on, Ajahn Kavli said, uh, "Why did he say Anumodana to you? What did you do?" But I'm sure it was about that water project, because he, he must have remembered it. Just felt uh, felt so good, felt so uplifted by that. And when Longpoliam speaks, he doesn't just throw out empty praises. He he, everything he says has substance. So anumodana means to delight in the goodness being done and and something like doing a uh, water system upgrade that's a long-term benefit for convenience for the community something that uh, we still reap the reap the fruits of and so it's not like uh not for myself getting like oh yeah I did this great thing but just uh that sense of This is a foundation for practice. Dana, generosity is a foundation for meditation practice. Generosity is a foundation for right practice, something to keep in mind. So even during the winter retreat, when we're doing more formal practice, that sense of generosity can still be cultivated. And we can be generous with our meditations. So say like the three weeks we just completed of group practice in the hall, Uh, Some of the monastic community were really diligent and really intent on being in the hall. That's an act of generosity. That's inspiring for others. Inspires others to practice. So when we push ourselves in the meditation practice, that can also be an act of generosity. So these are some things to consider, some things to think about. I feel very good about the state of the community right now, the Monastic community, the lay community, and feel that uh, this is a very good place to be where we can develop ourselves, develop our practice. So I wish everybody well, and I'll leave it there for this evening.